Amen and amen. Thank you guys for enduring that announcement with me. It's the biggest, most terrible announcement that changes nothing at all. So radical. You have a question? Oh, here it is. Okay, rise up and walk, man. That's the conference, 7.30. Hey, be there. Don't be, don't be a baby. It's going to be awesome. Mark chapter 1. Last week, we ended in verse 10 and 11, where Jesus came on the scene there in the region of the Jordan River, and he was baptized by his elder cousin, John the Baptizer. And he was baptized in the water, not because he needed to cleanse himself of sin, but he was identifying with your sin and my sin. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Not only that, but he was also submitting to the plan of the Father in his life that he one day would die on the cross for the sins of the world. Our Jesus did all this. And Jesus, when he came up out of the water, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit And the accolades of the Father, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Such a rad story. This is where we're going to be picking up in verses 10 and 11. And the one writing our story is none other than the man Mark. Mark, the gospel of Mark. There's a gospel by Matthew. Matthew was one of the disciples. There's another gospel by the name of John. John was one of the disciples. And then there are two other gospels, Luke and Mark, and they were not disciples of Jesus. They were not one of the original 12 with him on the journey. They were guys that got their start a little later in life. Maybe they missed the A team. Maybe they're part of the B team. They missed their first initial wave, but they got their lives changed and they were saved. Isn't that radical? That they weren't there with the original 12, but they did meet Jesus eventually. And God says, hey, welcome to the team. You mind writing a book about me? You mind doing something that's going to change the lives of hundreds, thousands, and millions and billions of people. Do you know how many billions of people have read the gospel of Mark? Isn't that incredible? And Mark, he writes the shortest of the gospels. There's only 16 chapters. Some of the other writers would give all kinds of eloquence and great length. All the different writers gave a different contribution, which again is encouraging to me. Each and every one of us who are believers have a different contribution. We have different giftings and different experiences and different backgrounds, different insights and different feelers. The way God made you is exactly the way God made you. And he made you that way on purpose. It's amazing. And he made you for purposes, for his glory and for others' good. Mark, and we remember last week we learned a little bit about Mark, not very much at all. He was a young man. Did you know that Mark doesn't even mention his name at the beginning of this gospel? It doesn't draw attention to himself. As a matter of fact, Mark is in the scriptures here as he writes this epistle. It's named after him later in the fact. But Mark is also mentioned in the book of Acts three separate times. I want you guys to know just a little bit about Mark, our author. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, it says that Barnabas and Paul were on their way to Antioch, and they took with them John Mark. Now, you guys know that John Mark was big Barney's nephew, that Barnabas was his uncle, that John Mark grew up in Jerusalem, and he had a mom named Mary. And Mary had a brother named Barnabas. And you guys know Barnabas was a great big old man, and he was nicknamed the son of encouragement. Because everywhere Barnabas would go, he would find men and women in the group that needed a hug, a big old bear hug, or a word of encouragement. Or maybe they'd slipped off the track a little bit. And Barney had this great gift of being able to find people. Hey, come on, let's get right back up here where you belong. And he would speak life into people. Well, John Mark is mentioned there, and they took him on the very first missionary journey. This guy, he was with Paul and Barney. And in Acts chapter 13, they go out on their first missionary journey. But in Acts chapter 14, 
we find that John Mark actually goes belly up and he bails out and he leaves the ministry. We don't know why. We're not told. This Mark right here, he had an opportunity to serve along Paul. And as they left the island of Cyprus, they sailed from Antioch to Cyprus in the north. They sailed to Turkey. And as soon as he got to Turkey, he said, man, this place is Turkey. I'm out of here. And he didn't want anything to do with it. Now, we don't know what happened to him. Most speculate that he got afraid because of the things that they were about to endure in a more hostile environment. As a matter of fact, today, Turkey is the most hostile environment in the world for Christianity, still to this day. And that's right where Barnabas and Paul and John Mark went. And as soon as John Mark, he was called a huperatus, which means he was an underrower, a servant of the ministry. And he got there and he looked around and he says, I'm going to take the next boat back. We don't know why. I speculate that maybe he'd gotten sick. Maybe he got seasick along the journey. How many of you guys get seasick when you go out fishing? How many of you guys get seasick when you just look at sea lions? Like, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> ah. I don't know what happened to him. Maybe he got afraid. Maybe the ministry was too tough for him. He was a young guy. Maybe he just couldn't hack the endurance necessary to keep going day in and day out. Doesn't say, but he left. Now, you guys, I'm saying all that to say something important. Five years went by, and John Mark missed out on that missionary journey. Paul, it was dangerous. When Paul and Barnabas continued on that journey now, having to carry their own bags and set up their own mics and PA equipment because their under rower went away, they had to do all the work. On that journey, did you know that Paul would actually be attacked physically? So much so in the city of Lystra, he would be attacked to death and he would be cast out of the city dead. And the believers rallied around him and he was brought back to life and he continued into Derby and then went back through it was a dangerous deal. I don't want to throw Mark under the bus for quitting. It was dangerous. Maybe it was even that God knew in his sovereignty that if John Mark goes with Paul, he's going to die too, and he'll stay dead. Maybe it was God's way of saving him, his failure, his fear. I don't know. God uses it all. I do know this, though. Five years later, the apostle Paul had the missionary itch. Oh, I got to get back on the mission field. You who've been on the mission field, you know when the missionary itch hits you again. I got to travel. I got to go see those people that I once was in fellowship. I got to see how they're doing. And so Paul called Barnabas and he said, let's put another trip together. And Barnabas was so pumped. He's like, let's do it. I'm going to call my nephew Johnny Mark, which is exactly what an encourager would do when someone's fallen off the wagon, fallen off track. You go get them and you put them right back where they began. Mark, though, found himself being recruited by Barnabas, but Paul said, no, you can't bring him. He failed. He fell into fear. He quit. He went belly up. He's too big of a risk for us. And you guys know this story. In Acts 15, the contention was so great that Paul and Barnabas split, and Barnabas grabbed John Mark and went on his journey, and Paul grabbed Silas and went on his journey, and it was a sad day for the church. Division and criticism and condescension. All these things happened. It's recorded because it's part of our lives as well, and we process through it. I say that to say this. John Mark would then fall off the face of history. We don't know what happened to him next, but we do know this. A man named Peter took him under his wing. A man named Peter began to disciple him. A man named Barnabas, his uncle, continued to disciple him, continued to build him up. We know this because later on when Peter would write 1 Peter, he would end his book in chapter 5, right around verse 11, say, hey, John Mark my son in the faith, greets you also. I've been working on him. Yeah, he fell into fear and he fell into failure, but you know what Peter did in his life as well? He fell into fear and failure. P Peter was one of the biggest failures there was. 
Peter was so boastful, so big and so prideful in his own abilities. And he told Jesus, even if these other knuckleheads leave you and forsake you, I'll never leave you. I'll go to the cross with you, brah. And Jesus put his hand on Peter's shoulder and said, sorry, bro. By the end of the night, the rooster's gonna crow. And before that happens, you'll have denied me three times. And you guys know this story. For the rest of Peter's life, history tells us that whenever Peter would go to hostile areas or other churches, some people would mock him by doing this when he would show up. You know, kind of point out, I'm just kidding, but for real, bro. You did that? You denied Jesus? And he had this guilt and shame that Peter had to work through. And I believe that sometimes when we fail, sometimes when fear takes us over, sometimes when we find ourselves coming up short, man, it's the worst. Isn't that the worst? But God uses that in order to give us empathy for people along our journey that also have maybe suffered through a divorce, that maybe who have also suffered through some failure or fear. Maybe you started a life group and it didn't work. Maybe you started a Forest More Bible study. Maybe you went on a missionary trip and it was a disaster. Maybe you did something and it didn't go the way you thought it was gonna go. What are you gonna do now? I say that to say this. Years later, Peter talking to Mark They find themselves reflecting on all that Jesus did. And most scholars believe that when Mark wrote what we're studying right now, it was a direct account from him and Peter's relationship. Mark wasn't there. Mark wasn't there in all of these stories. You know where Mark was, though? Hearing Peter's side of the story. And Peter, evidently being unable to write the gospel in his own hand, had Mark write it for him. Your story's not done yet. What if you do have a season of fear and failure? What if you do have seasons of weakness and struggle? Maybe God would provide for you a Barnabas or a Peter, somebody to come alongside of you and say, don't give up yet. Keep going. Oh, but I don't have any authority. I don't know what I'm doing. God's grace is sufficient for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? As a matter of fact, Mark's so funny. He writes this entire gospel, gospel of Mark, and he only mentions himself one time. One time. I'm actually going to read it to you. It's in Mark 14. Check this out. He does mention himself once. It's kind of in a cameo appearance here. It's in Mark 14. It's verse 51. It says, now a certain young man, that's him, followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Stop right there, eyes up here. What? Mark's writing the story of Jesus. He's like, you know, there was this one time where I did actually show up. And I was a young boy. They speculate he was anywhere from 12 to 15 years old, hanging out in the shadows of the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Romans showed up and started arresting people. And they laid hold of this young man, 12 to 15 years of age. And so he threw off his outer jacket. Now, he wasn't naked, naked. Okay, this is just his undergarments. And he took off running. No other gospel writer includes this story. Not Matthew, not Luke, not John. Mark, when he's writing this, he's like, you know what? There is this one kind of embarrassing story. I actually was there and it was weird. I failed and I had fear. I say all that. May the Lord restore you even today to be one who tells Jesus' story. It's not your story. It's not your story. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. And you might be littered with fear and failure and mistakes. Oh, I can't help anyone. I can't do anything. Look what I've done. Lord, it's not about you. You might have two verses. Well, I ran away naked. Okay, got it. And then what happened? Well, Jesus changed everything. 
Jesus saved me, Jesus saves others. And when you have that type of understanding, you too can be used to tell the story of Jesus Christ. And so important, that's why I love this particular gospel because it's told in such a fast pace that he wanted to cram in all of these stories. As we study through the gospel of Mark, imagine looking through somebody's slideshow or picture album of their great trip to the Grand Canyon and as they flip through, they point at one picture and then they tell you all this stuff, what happened at that picture. Mark just gives us picture after picture after picture. One verse sometimes where other gospel writers give 12 or 13 verses to accompany that picture. And I'm gonna do our best, I'm gonna do my best to help us extract all that we can from each picture. As a matter of fact, I think we left some meat on the bones with this whole baptism in the Jordan River. We see here evidence, verses 10 and 11, I'll read it to you again. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, that is Jesus and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus receives now the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We see here the Trinity, the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending, and the Son being baptized. And I think it's important that we settle into this, that Jesus was always a Christian from birth. You know that? He, he was always a Christian. He never needed to be saved. He always was saved. You and I, though, were not always Christians. We became a Christian at one point through belief and repentance. We believed in Jesus and received then the free gift of life. Jesus here, though, also at this point, age 30, receives the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing and baptism, which is absolutely necessary for you who are believers, forgiven that we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. We know this, don't we? Here's the deal, though. I believe that in every truth, there's a ditch of excess and neglect, especially when it comes to the Holy Spirit. There are some churches that say, yeah, Holy Spirit, and they jump right into the ditch of abuse and excess, and they say, everything's got to be spirit-filled, and they go too far. Have you ever been to a church like this or maybe met somebody who's maybe a little bit too spirit-filled, and I say that with an asterisk, and maybe just a little too much emphasis, but then the other ditch is maybe a ditch that most of us fall into where we don't realize and recognize and rely upon the filling of the Holy Spirit for every single daily thing we're doing, for the ministry of being single for the ministry of being married, for the ministry of serving in your neighborhood, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important that we realize that, listen, if Jesus Christ himself was filled with the Holy Spirit to do the ministry he was about to do and live the life he was about to live, so too you and me need to be filled with the Holy Spirit daily. And even using that language and understanding, you who are going to school tomorrow and needing to sit through lectures and learn things and take tests or going to work or being tested in the field, Lord, Fill me with your Holy Spirit again. Jesus here emphasizes and evidences this. Now, I have taught this over the years. I'll say it quickly. The Holy Spirit is with every single person in the whole world at all times. He's with them, right alongside of them. This is his ministry. He's with everyone in Uganda right now. He's with everyone even in Walport right now. He's with everyone all over right now. And when you respond to his withness and give your life over to him, he moves from with to in. And you're born again, and the Holy Spirit is now in you. You're filled with the Holy Spirit in that way of sanctification and being born again. But there's a third relationship. He's with everybody. Those who soften their hearts and repent have him move into them, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where you're born again. Then there's the third part in a relationship, which is when he comes upon you, with, in, and upon and when he comes upon you, that is the power of the Holy Spirit to do the next right thing. 
Whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's a resisting of sin or whether it's a walking in the fruits of the spirit or whether it's a serving somebody or worship or speaking in tongues like I'm doing right now as I'm using my God-given birth tongue to speak the words of God. That's a filling of the Holy Spirit to minister to people, to heal people, to forgive people. And you must be filled with the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you in this way. Jesus used the word dunamis, which is our English word, dynamite. He said, the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you, dunamis and you'll be my witnesses in the world. It's important that we understand this. I think you guys get this. But here, Mark says, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Father was pleased in him. Now, as I read the next verses, they don't make much sense to me in order. God says, I'm so pleased in you, son. This is such a big day. Look at verse 12. Let's continue the story. Immediately, everyone say immediately. Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him. Stop right there, eyes up here. Has your dad ever told you, I'm so proud of you, get in the car. And taking you right to the wilderness to subject you to 40 days of satanic testing? <laughs> That's not really what I expect when my dad says he's proud of me, like, I'm so proud of you, son, let's go, you know. It doesn't make any sense, but you see the language here immediately. There's no wondering and glory and relishing in this baptism experience. This is very important, the transition here. Luke and Matthew both detail this story of the baptism, receiving God's accolades, and then immediately being driven into the wilderness for 40 days of testing and tempting. Now, we know that 40 is a very significant number in the scriptures. It rained for 40 days and nights. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. 40 speaks of judgment and, and newness and, and this process that God's taking Jesus through. And God was doing this because in the beginning, Adam couldn't resist sin and temptation. He fell into it. And so Jesus being the second Adam was subjected to these same temptations and yet without failure, without flaw for 40 days, buffeted by the enemy. How many of you guys like testing and being buffeted by your enemy? How many of you guys like buffets? Okay, different, totally different. Different spelling, different pronunciation, okay? Make sure you read the small print. Don't go sign up for a buffeting, you know? You, know, you don't want that. A buffet's different. As a matter of fact, if you were making your next vacation kind of reservations and you read the fine print that this particular stay, 40-day minimum, no food, and daily satanic attacks, you know? You're not gonna book that stay. You're like, I'm not doing that one. I'll read the reviews, but I'm not doing that one, you know? <laughs> Here's the deal, though. Similar to what I alluded to in the announcements, that without subjection to difficulty and sacrifice, we just don't grow the same. Things don't happen in the way of our maturation and our development if we're not subjected to certain levels of difficulty. It's just the way it is. It's a principle and so Jesus here is driven for so many reasons, reasons we'll never fully understand, but I think we would do well to lean into it just a little bit. As a matter of fact, if you're a note taker, uh, write these things down. I want you to learn this from this kind of, why is Jesus being tested and tempted in this way, and what can we learn from it? Number one, just because you're being tested or tempted doesn't mean that you're failing or it's a bad thing. How many of you guys, when you're being tested or tempted, kind of just feel icky? It's like, man, this is weird. I just feel like there's a relationship thing right here, and there's an issue, and I feel tempted in this way. I feel like I'm being attacked. This is, I don't like this. I don't like it either. 
Jesus went through it, and if you're going through it, it's not a sin or a bad thing to go through that. It's what comes out of us during those times that can be sinful. That's when it gets dangerous. But sometimes we wonder, why is it so difficult right now? What did I do to deserve this? And the Lord says, oh, no, 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 I love you. You're my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Let's go into the wilderness. What? You're my son in whom I am well pleased. Let's go into this difficulty. What? It's not a bad thing to go through testing. It happened to Jesus, and if it's happening to you, take great comfort because you're in great company. Number two, Jesus endured and succeeded this testing by quoting scripture. You guys know this. Mark doesn't allude to this, but both Matthew and Luke, when they recount the story, tell us that as Jesus was pummeled by the devil, Jesus continued to take out the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word. And he quoted once, twice, three times that we know of out of the book of Deuteronomy. He was tempted in his flesh and tempted in his soul. He was tempted in his spirit, tempted in his body. And every single time that he was tempted by the devil, he quoted out of the book of Deuteronomy. It was as if he was in the five by five reading program in the book of Deuteronomy. And I just want to encourage you. The Bible says to hide his word in us that we might not sin against him. The word of God, the truth of God, the spirit of God, the shield of God, the sword of the spirit. Those are the only defenses we have when we're being tested. And I don't know about you. But there comes a time in your life where the word of God goes from being maybe two-dimensional and black and white to becoming three-dimensional and applicable to our lives. I was talking with my friend Chance here yesterday. He's down visiting from Yakima and on his way back up there to the Antioch Christian Training School for the Ascent Program. And we were talking about the challenge by taking God's word from something we believe in our minds to being something we actually believe over matter, the things in our life that we're experiencing. I believe that I'm a child of God. I believe I'm filled with the spirit. I believe I'm forgiven. I believe that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But sometimes I don't feel that. Sometimes my feelers get broken. Your feelers ever get broken? Sometimes our feelers lead us astray. Well, here's the deal. God's faith in his word always trumps your feelers. And when you know God's word and you study it, you can stand on it even when you don't feel it. It's those great days when you feel it as well. Sometimes though, the Lord says, I want you to walk by faith. Jesus endured, he succeeded by quoting scripture. Number three, write this down. We got seven principles out of these two verses. Number three, you're not gonna have a testimony without a test. Why is this happening to Jesus? Why is, this, why is the test you're going through happening right now? When we go through testings and temptations, it's that test in the way that we behave and receive God in that test that makes our testimony our testimony. And I want to have a powerful testimony. Sometimes I wonder why I'm going through a situation and the purification that comes of my faith and of my story only happens in testing. Number four, write this down. Jesus was tested and tempted in all ways without sin so he could be our high priest and save us from our sin. Why did Jesus be driven right into the wilderness? For 40 days, he was subjected to every single temptation you've ever been subjected to and have succumbed to. And yet Jesus, when he faced your sin and temptation, he resisted and he did not fall into it. Not just your sin, but the sins of the whole world. You ever wonder how Jesus on the cross and his blood and sacrifice and offering satisfied the wrath and righteousness of God? Because for 40 days, he endured all of the testing. And unlike you and unlike me, he didn't fall down or fall prey. He resisted. So when he submitted himself to the Lord, it was perfect in nature. This was necessary that he would be successful. Number five, you can write this down for your consideration. Jesus can empathize with your weakness and your sin. You ever look at the stuff you struggle with and you're just so embarrassed, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I did that. 
And you look at the Lord, you're like, Lord, I'm such a worm. I can't believe I've done this. And the Lord says, I, I know you. I was right there in the wilderness, 40 days, no food. I know what you went through. I know your weakness. And I absorb that. I can empathize. Jesus, who's filled with the Holy Spirit and perfect in all these ways. And I'll tell you what, when I go through a test or a temptation or sin, and I find myself coming out the other side, one of the things that always is a benefit and a fruit of that difficult process is a greater empathy and a greater sympathy for other people in their times of testing. Have you ever failed in a test? You ever made a mistake and then come through and been rebuilt and restored? And then you find yourself walking alongside of somebody else who's going through the same thing and your eyes open up a little more. Oh, I've been there before. I've done that. Or maybe it's not something that you did to yourself, but it was just a difficult test, a sacrifice. I remember when my wife and I got, uh, she got pregnant in 2006. We were so excited. And then shortly into 2007, January 8th, we had a miscarriage and we lost our first baby. It was a very difficult experience for us. So devastating. Yet shortly thereafter, a few months later, we met some other couples that were also going through miscarriages, and we were able to be with them. Just be with them. Nothing we could do for them. Just be with them. It's the ministry of withness. And when you're with somebody that's lost a child or lost a spouse or lost their business or lost their marriage or gone through something, oh, you know, and there's an empathy and there's a likeness that we get only in the testing. A couple more things that we get from this chat. Why, why would Jesus, why did God do this? Testing and tempting and storms are often God's way of doing his best work in us. I want to grow. I want God to use me. I want to be the best man that I possibly can be. And yet it's not through reading another theological book that always advances the cause. It's not always through going to a camp or a conference Sometimes it's through going through the backside of the desert that God develops my faith and corrects me and instructs me and protects me and prepares me for what he wants to do. We see this in the book of Acts as Paul goes through one test after another and God is doing mighty things in his life. Lastly, testing number seven, if you're writing these things down, and challenges provide an opportunity for our faith to be showcased. How many of you guys are Christians here this morning? 8 a.m., probably all of you guys are Christians. If you're not a Christian, you should be. I don't know why you're here. <laughs> Figure it out. Give your life to Jesus. It's right. It's the right thing to do. And the people around you know you're a Christian, and most likely they're, they're not really impressed with you if they're non-believers until they see you go through a certain test in your life. And when you as a believer go through a certain test in your life, your faith is actually showcased to them. When something goes wrong for you, when something gets difficult for you, and oftentimes when something goes wrong for me or goes difficult for me, I do silly things, I do the wrong thing, I come up short, it's always not showcase worthy. But there are other times when it gets difficult and my eyes like Jehoshaphat's are on the Lord and I don't know what to do in this test. So my eyes are on you and the Lord says, whoa. And provision and miracles and power are given to me because I passed the test. And when you pass the test, the test will pass. And when all this happens, people see that Jesus is real in your life. Your shirt might say it, but when your life shows it, it's that much more powerful why would I go through this test? Well, because your kids aren't believers yet. And as you navigate through this cancer, as you navigate through this divorce, as you navigate through this loss, your faith will show and your kids will actually see your faith evidenced, not just hear your words moving. See, God will test your faith. This can be so offensive. Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you upping the ante? Why are you increasing the pressure? Do you hate me, Lord? No, no, I'm very well pleased with you. The Holy Spirit's upon you. Let's go to the woods. What? To showcase and to show off your faith. 
I remember one time I was in the market for a new car, and so I drove to the Medford Subaru dealership, and I was in a borrowed Toyota, and I was just kind of moving through the lots. And you've ever know if you go to a car lot, man, they come out fast, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and this lady came out, she was in my car before I knew it, you know, had my, and I was like, wow, where'd you come from, you know? And long story short, she says, well, let's take a car for a test drive. Let's just take a car for a test drive. And I had a few minutes, so I jumped in the passenger, and she jumped in the driver, and she began driving in this, like, Subaru Outback thingamabob. And we started driving. She said, okay, there's some S-curves coming up here. Hold on. And she went into this S-curve going 45 miles an hour. You know, I started texting people, pray for me, you know. And it was the craziest test drive I've ever been on. There was one part where we were on the road and there was a big embankment, all gravel. And she went off the road and parked and then peeled out as fast as she could to show what this car could do. At one point, she looked over the hood and there was a scoop on the hood. And she realized what car we had taken from the lot. She was, oh, this is that Subaru, you know, and, and all the rest. And why was she doing this? She was showing off, testing the car wanting me to see what it could do, how it could perform. She wasn't trying to break the car, she was trying to sell the car. So to God, sometimes when we find ourselves going through tight turns and situations that are uneven, why is this happening? And the Lord says, well, I'm showing you off. I'm actually building you up. I'm actually doing something to you. It's a funny story. We got back to the lot and she said, what's your budget? And I said, I've got $700. <laughs> I am not kidding. It was the end of our relationship. Never went back. Somebody from the church gave me a car. It was a, anyways. Why would this happen? He gets tested. Let's read it again. I want you to see this. Immediately, verse 12, the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Interesting. So much more we could get from this. Jesus relying on the scriptures, Jesus enduring all this. Oh, maybe you're in a testing time right now. Okay, do the next right thing. Hunker down behind his word. Trust the process. The angels ministered to him. The wild beasts, by the way, submitted to him. This is crazy. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Let's keep going here. Look at verse 14. It says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying this time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus with his message now on the heels of John the baptizer who's arrested by King Herod for righteousness sake. You guys know the story. John the baptizer told King Herod he ought not to be doing the silly things he was doing with other people's wives. And he got in trouble for this. He was standing up for righteousness. And so they quieted him. And immediately when you try and quiet righteousness, Jesus will just send somebody else. Here in the story, he showed up. Jesus goes to Galilee and begins to preach. This, by the way, would have been a controversial message. Repent and believe for the gospel of the kingdom of God is near. I say that to say this. Those people in these days, you know what they wanted? They wanted a political deliverer. They wanted somebody to come get Rome off their backs to deliver them unilaterally or linearly. And here Jesus comes and says, guys, I'm the deliverer. Oh, what are we gonna do? You're gonna repent and you're gonna believe in the kingdom of God. What? What about the Romans? Not my problem. What about King Herod? Not my problem. What about all this stuff going on around us? That's not why I'm here. I'm here so that way you can get connected vertically because until you're connected vertically, it doesn't matter what you do horizontally. This is an offensive message now. It was an offensive message then, but this is what Jesus came preaching on the heels of John the baptizer. Jesus, 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 because until you connect with him vertically, there is no other thing in your life that matters more. By the way, this idea of repenting and believing are big deals. 
To repent doesn't just mean to be sorrowful for your sins. It is that. We know that. When we sin and make mistakes, we should repent and have a measure of sorrow in there. But to repent in this fashion literally means to think differently, to change your mindset because what you believe determines how you behave. Repent and believe. And the idea of believe, this Greek word here that Mark uses is a big idea word that doesn't just mean to, oh, I believe that. It literally means I believe it. I'm resting in it. I'm resting in the new savior. I'm resting in Jesus Christ. And all of the men and women who repented and believed in Jesus, their lives were changed forever. So much were their lives changed that they could die at the hands of the Romans, being torn in two, being lit on fire, being fed to animals. Why? Because their kingdom was not here. They were completely different. I gotta ask this question. Have you ever met a believer like this before? Are you becoming a believer like that? that your kingdom's not here. You, you've repented, not, not just of your sins, that for sure, but you've repented of your thinking, your ideology, your comfort levels. It's not about this world. I'm going home, I'm just a pilgrim passing through. I'm a believer and it changes everything about you. This was a countercultural message 2,000 years ago, as much as it is today. And Jesus showed up to Galilee where they would receive this and they would understand my kingdom is not of this world. A powerful message. Well, Jesus doesn't stop there. Look at verse 16. We're going to make it to verse 20. I promise you guys we're going to do this. And he walked by the Sea of Galilee. As he walked, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who was also there in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Stop right there, eyes up here. We now see the calling of the first and initial disciples. A couple notes, though, that are important. This wasn't the first time Jesus had met these guys. John chapter 1 and John chapter 4 tell us of a relationship he already had with them. Listen, but this was different. They had been investigating who Jesus was and Jesus had been watching who they were. And now Jesus walked up to him and said, let's go. I'm gonna make you fishers of men. It's gonna require you leaving your nets. It's gonna require you leaving something to follow me. Instead of just looking at me and having a relationship with me, I want you to be my disciples and I want you to follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. There comes a time in our life, in our Christianity, where we stop just having a casual relationship with Jesus, observing who he is, and instead, we answer the call and say, Lord, take me and use me however you want in my life. It's no longer mine, and there will be a sacrifice. You, you can't follow somebody without leaving something else behind. And it could just be an ideology. It could be something you're holding on to. You might not have to leave your profession, but you might have to leave the way you've structured your profession in order to follow Jesus obediently and serve him with your life willingly. Fishers of men. Notice Jesus found these guys. They were all doing something. Peter and Andrew, brothers, were casting their nets. James and John were mending their nets. I have not found in the scriptures where God calls any man or woman to follow him that wasn't previously doing something. Just something. He's looking for men and women that are busy doing something. Even Matthew was collecting taxes when Jesus called him and said, hey, stop that, man. Come with me, you know? And I'll tell you what, if you want the Lord to call you and to use you, just keep doing what you're doing availing yourself to him. The greatest ability in Christianity is availability. And as you give your life to the Lord and ask him, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? 
I feel like I'm being tested. I feel like I'm going through the ringer. I feel like things are against me. And the Lord might say, yeah, they are, because I've been preparing you for such a time as this. A couple more thoughts as I have Pastor Toby come up and lead us in a closing song. I want you guys to be encouraged today on these thoughts. Peter and Andrew, James and John, all would go down in history as mighty men of God used by him. But listen, each and every one of them would be used differently. Andrew and Peter would be evangelists, both in nature. Peter would be an evangelist with a very broad net. He would reach a lot of people, billions through his books, thousands through his messages. Andrew was a little different. He was an evangelist as well, but God would only use him maybe one at a time, a dozen or a half a dozen. Sometimes we compare ourselves to other men and women, what they're doing. Be careful of that. Matter of fact, just kind of look around. Look around, don't look at me, look around. Look, look, look at all the people that God's put in here. Each and every one of you have been gifted and uniquely fashioned for such a time as this, as Andrews and as Peters. James and John, the other two mentioned here, they weren't casting their nets, but they were mending their nets. James and John would go down in history as being the fathers of the church, the ones that would help develop the church. They would write the policies. They would do the counseling sessions. They would heal people. They would be arbitrators between problems. Andrew and Peter would be out saving the masses. James and John would be out making sure things were organized. What's your natural gifting? What's your natural disposition? How has God made you? Did you know that he made you for such a time as this exactly as you're supposed to be, male or female? Maybe you're an introvert. Maybe you're an extrovert. Maybe you're loud and you talk a lot like Pastor Luke. Maybe you're better at listening like Pastor Luke's wife. She has the gift of mercy. She'll just listen, and, and, and God uses that, and she'll, it's amazing how God makes each and every one of us different. Here's my encouragement to South Beach Church this morning as we close with a song. Jesus showed up and said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is here. Repent and believe. The good news, that if you believe in him, you'll be saved from your sins, that your life will be changed. It's not a political system. It's not something else that's horizontal. It's vertical and then immediately Jesus began to contract people to go with them. He said, hey, let's go, let's go. You, leave your nets, let's, 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 let's do this together. And Jesus is looking for men and women to do this with right now. Would you guys stand with me? Father, we thank you that indeed you've gone before us, Lord, and you've called us to be with you. And I pray, Lord, a special blessing for those who are being tested right now. Just as Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights was tested and subjected to all kinds of difficulty, and he found himself, Lord, quoting the scriptures and relying on you. Would you, Lord, strengthen us as well? Forgive us of our sins and help us to, Lord, lean on you, not on our own understanding, and go before us. May the gospel, Lord, that Mark shares be the gospel that we share. If you're here this morning and you need that extra dose of his Holy Spirit, maybe you need to be saved this morning. You need to be delivered. Maybe you need to repent and be restored. If any of that applies to you and you just need the Holy Spirit to minister to you now, would you raise up your hand right now? Just by response, I need you, Jesus. I love you. I came to church this morning to get you, to love you, to respond to you. And I want to leave this morning being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be filled that I might be the man or woman you want me to be. Forgive me of my sins. Restore the joy of my salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, Lord. Have your way in my life, Lord. My hands are up to you in Jesus' name, Lord. We love you. Bless us as we sing this song in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. If you need prayer, I'm over here on your left. If you need prayer, come find me.